Amen. You guys may have a seat. And as you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We are starting a new series today. Last week we wrapped up our Advent series looking at the second coming of Christ and what that means for us and how that is our great hope as Christians. And in a way, we're almost doing a 180 as we start Ecclesiastes. Uh, We go from our hope in the world to come to a book that's very much focused on the here and now that we live in. As you guys are sure well aware, we're at the beginning of a new year. And in our culture, New Year's tends to be a time of optimism and hope. If the year before was bad, well, this one could be better. And if we are disappointed in ourselves, well, we can be better, right? Get the resolutions going, get the goals going, let's do it. But what tends to happen? A lot of times, things don't actually get better. Remember last year, after we went through 2020, we're like, oh, thank God 2021 is here, right? How'd that go for us? Was not particularly better, right? Just had its own stuff. And then as for our self-improvement, how often do those goals and resolutions falter? Sometimes before we even make it out of January. But even if it doesn't go that way, right? Even if things do improve, what if the next year is better than the last? Don't we just get left wishing it was better yet? Is it ever good enough? And even if we do improve, maybe you keep all your resolutions, you hit all those goals, don't we simply end up seeing more ways that we lack, more things we need to grow in, more ways to be better, to be enough. The way that we would like the world to work often does not line up with the reality that we end up seeing as we live in it. Enter Ecclesiastes. This is a book about life in the here and now. And it says things about it that we often think and feel and hesitate to say because they're not the way that we want the world here and now to be or because they somehow indicate a lack of faith or faithfulness if this is really what we thought the world was like. But hard truth is better than comfortable lies. Proverbs 27.6 tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend and many are the kisses of an enemy. Ecclesiastes is a faithful friend that will lay bare the difficult truth of the nature of life in this world here and now under the curse so that we can engage it with clear eyes for what it really is, knowing what it can and what it can't do. We're so prone to do what my little two-year-old does when she covers her eyes and says, Daddy, you can't see me. Right? That's a lot of times what we want to do with the world, right? We want to just have a narrative in our head and make that true and pretend like some of the messiness and some of the things that aren't the way we want them to be aren't true. But of course, covering your eyes doesn't change reality. But what Ecclesiastes says is by exposing the true nature of life in this world, what it's going to do is it's going to strip us of all our false hopes. And ultimately, it's going to bring us the long way around to the one place where our true hope can be found, by loosening our grip on everything else. Ecclesiastes is a little bit like a cold shower. Have you guys ever taken those voluntarily or sometimes not voluntarily? Right? They're not fun, right? They're a little shocking. You know, that, first, that water first hits you, it's like this jolt. 
They're uncomfortable at first, to be sure. But do you remember what you feel like when you're done with it? Right? Like, you're awake. You're invigorated. You're alert. That's what Ecclesiastes is like. It's a cold shower. Some of the stuff we're going to read is going to be shocking. It's going to seem contradictory. It doesn't seem like things that should be in the Bible to us. But what it does is it wakes us up. It reorients us and invigorates us for life as we come to face reality with clear eyes. Let's read the first 11 verses as we get into it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind on its circuits. The wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for giving us um, what you know we need to hear and what we need to, uh, to trust you and to live in this world. And some of those things are obvious and clear on the surface and some are harder and more obscure and more difficult. And this is one of those, uh, Lord, but this is important wisdom for us. And so we ask for your spirit's help that you'd give us eyes to see what we need to uh, in your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would help my words, that I would communicate your truth clearly, and that you'd give us soft hearts, uh, even as we see things in you that we do not like, um, that are hard to acknowledge. Um, Lord, may we be submissive to your word rather than our own desires this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So happy new year, right guys? It's a nice uplifting little, uh, little passage for us to begin with. But this passage really does capture the theme of this book. We have a lot to look forward to. (laughs) And it's really going to on-ramp us into what we're going to be talking about throughout the series. And so what I want to walk you guys through today is, first of all, what is Ecclesiastes anyway? What is this book? Where did it come from? Who's it by? So you kind of, because you've got to understand that to understand what is going on here. Then we're going to talk a little bit about its main theme, what we're going to be talking about as we go through it and then what it ultimately points us towards. All right, so, so what are we dealing with with Ecclesiastes, right? What, what is this? So it's, a, it's a type of literature called wisdom literature. It's really important to understand what, we're, what kind of thing we're reading, right? If you're reading the newspaper and you think it's poetry, you're gonna have a very different understanding of what you're reading, right? So we need to understand what it is that we're engaging with. And wisdom literature is this, this genre in scripture. We've got a few books Psalms and Song of Solomon fit in it too, but it really, the core books that fit in this category are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And they're really all in conversation with each other in Scripture. They're all 
uh, engaging each other. And what wisdom literature seeks to do is it's not, it's not a record of historical events of things that have happened. We've got lots of that in scripture. Most of scripture is narrative, right? It's records of things that have happened. It's also not promises about the future. It's not prophecy. It's not apocalyptic literature like Revelation and things like that. What wisdom literature seeks to do is it seeks to describe life as it is. It seeks to kind of cut through all the noise and tell you what is really going on right now. How do you make sense of what you're living and experiencing? And I say it's in conversation with Proverbs and Job because you get a very different perspective on life in this world from each of these books, and you're meant to. They don't disagree with each other, but they're definitely talking to each other, and they're definitely having an intense conversation about what's really going on in the world. Proverbs presents the world kind of as it should be, It's considered the the traditional view of wisdom, right? If you are righteous, good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things happen to you, right? If you work hard and are diligent, you'll be wealthy. If you're lazy, you'll be poor, right? These kind of things that like, we hear them and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's how things should work. It's very just, it makes sense. That's what Proverbs presents. But then with Job and Ecclesiastes, we get a, wait a second, not so fast. That sounds great, but look at this, right? That's too simplistic. That does not make sense of the world that we live in. You see both of these things in Job, right? Job's friends who come to him, he's suffering, and they say, hey, you must have done something wrong. Like, repent of your sin. He's like, I, I don't have any. Like, I, if I knew, I would repent. I don't like how I feel right now. I would do it. I don't have it. They're kind of like Proverbs. They're saying like, well, if you're suffering, it means you got sin, so you got to deal with it. And Job's like, I get that, but it's just not true. Ecclesiastes is kind of like Job to Proverbs. Proverbs says all these things. This is the way things should work. This is how it should be. And we all nod and like, yeah, that's how it should work. Bad people should get their comeuppance. Righteous people should be rewarded. Ecclesiastes says it's just not reality, though. That's all well and good. It looks good on paper, but it's not what's playing out out there when I look around. So... Who is it that has the gall to say this stuff, right? Who is it that is going to push back on Proverbs? Well, when we read the book, there's actually two speakers in Ecclesiastes, right? And we already saw both of them. One is a narrator who speaks very little for himself. He spoke the first verse in Ecclesiastes, and he comes back in at the end, but he's relatively quiet. But his job is really to present the voice of the main speaker, who you guys see in here called, depends on your version, but the preacher or the teacher, Right? And that's who the book is named after. If you ever wonder what Ecclesiastes means, that's what Ecclesiastes means. It comes from the word ecclesia, which is where we get church. It's the assembly. So Ecclesiastes is the one who gathers the assembly together to teach them. Right? And in Hebrew, that work is Kohelet. And that's what they know this book as, Kohelet. And so we've got a narrator, and then we have the teacher. And we don't know who wrote this book for sure. But what we do know, and what really matters regardless of who held the pen, is that the wisdom that comes through the book is seen through the eyes of King Solomon, right? He probably didn't write it down just because of the way the language is and stuff. It was written down later. We're pretty sure of that. But the guy who did write it down is very clearly representing Solomon's teaching, right? And there's all kinds of stuff in the book we're going to see throughout it that he's giving us Solomon's perspective on life. And that is very important because Solomon is positioned to speak into life in the here and now in a way that no other person has been. 
right? Everyone has opinions on everything. I have opinions on everything. Ask me about anything, I've got an opinion on it. Doesn't mean it's worth anything though, right? And in our world with the internet, everybody gets to express their opinions all the time, right? This is what social media is. We just all get to share our opinions with everybody. And, and, but what we gotta not forget is that not all opinions are of equal value. Right? If you ask my opinion on something medical, I don't know anything. Like, you should not listen to my opinion on medical stuff. I can have one, but it's not valuable. I don't have any training. I don't have any experience. You shouldn't listen to me. My opinion doesn't really have any value to anybody else. Right? Most of our opinions don't have much worth because they're not grounded in real knowledge, real experience. They haven't been tested. They haven't dealt with opposing arguments. All these rigorous things that happen to test and prove something to be true. Right? So the person who's going to bring these hard realities of Ecclesiastes, like, it matters whose opinion this is. And Solomon has, is literally like the subject matter expert on life in this world because God set him up to be that. Let's go back to Solomon's biography for a minute and to just see how God positioned Solomon to bring this wisdom of the world to us. This is from 1 Kings 3, 5 through 13. There we read this. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. God basically gives Solomon a blank check. He's just about to take the throne, replacing his father David, and God says, whatever you want, just ask me. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept from him this great and steadfast, and you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or, life, or the lives of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So Solomon is uniquely qualified to talk about life in this world for two reasons that come out here, that God specifically equipped him for. The first is that he is the wisest person who has ever lived. God made him the wisest person, wiser than anybody who came before him, and wiser than anybody who will come after him. It's this divine gift of wisdom that God gave Solomon. So he is going to have a deeper understanding of what he sees and experiences. He's gonna think about it in ways that the rest of us can't because we don't have this level of wisdom. So God uniquely qualified him to think about life in this world, to try to understand it and to process it. But not only that, right? Because Solomon doesn't, isn't stuck up in the ivory tower of academia with books just thinking about stuff, right? He's also given riches, power, prestige, honor, 
he has essentially unlimited resources. So he can test the things he thinks about, right? He's up there thinking about life. He's like, oh, I think this is the meaning of life. Let me just go do it. Where we have all kinds of ideas that we think, oh, this would be great. This would make my life a lot better. And we don't have the ability to do it, right? And I can hold on to those theories in my head and be like, yep, if I could, you know, if I had my own island, life would be perfect. I wouldn't need anything else. And until I can test that and find out it's not true, I can hold on to that. And it's like, yeah, it's an island. I just can't, I just can't make it happen. But if I could, that would do it. Solomon does not have that problem. He can literally go get whatever he wants. Whatever he thinks will satisfy, will make sense of this life, he can go and get it. All right? So you just see this? Like how uniquely Solomon got to engage with the world, right? Well, he's an he's incredible pile of resources to do whatever the heck he wants to. And at the same time, he's got this gift of wisdom to think about what he is experiencing himself and what he sees in the world around him and to understand it and to try to make sense of it. And he brings all of this to bear as he looks at life in this world, right? And so th this is why this is such a gift to us. We don't get to live life in this world this way. We're all limited. We're all capped by something. And so we can be left to wonder, what if? Solomon has no what ifs. He gets to exhaust everything he wants to run down. And so with all this, bringing all this to the table to look at life in this world, what does he come to? What's the conclusion? And we can summarize his teaching about life in this world with, with one word. One word. And in Hebrew, it's the word havel. In your translation, it's probably translated vanity, futility, meaningless. I also think the best translation is probably the most literal one, which would be vapor. Vapor. This word occurs 38 times in this fairly short book. It's in every chapter of the book except for one. When Solomon looks at life here under the sun, it's another phrase you're going to hear a lot. He looks at life here under the sun, the here and now. His conclusion is it is all hevel. It is all vapor. Now what's wrapped up in this word? What is he saying about the word when he says it's vapor? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of characteristics that he's, that he's hitting on. And a lot of those words that our translation uses capture one or another. Right? But so vapor, some of these things, right? First of all, it's temporary. Think about when it's cold out and you breathe. You see that, that vapor? How long does it last? It's there and then it's gone. Right? It dissipates so quickly. And that's one of the things that Solomon looks at the world. He says, like, everything is just, it's there and then it's gone. It's so quick. It's so fleeting. Nothing lasts. Nothing is sustained. Even the good things, once, like, no sooner do you get it than it but it's gone and disappears. Vapor. The other thing is that vapor is not what it appears to be. Right? We, can, we can capture this the best with little kids, right? Because we've been around vapor a lot and we know what it is. But if you see a little kid, the first time my kids saw their breath, what'd they try to do? They tried to grab it. It looks like something you could grab onto. It, it looks like there's something there, but when you reach to grab, what happens? You can't grasp it. It just, it eludes being held onto and caught and pinned down. So when he says vapor, he's saying it's, it's not, the things of this world aren't what they appear to be on the surface. They can't do what you think maybe they would be able to do. All right, I love this. <laughs> when somebody asked Winston Churchill about Russia 
and their plans for World War II early on before, before things got heated. And Churchill said this about Russia, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Being very dramatic, talking about how he has just no clue about it. And, and that's kind of what's captured in this vapor. You just can't, you can't get a hold on it. You can't pin it down what it is. Another thing is, is that it is disappointing, right? So some of the translations will say meaningless. That's not the best because clearly, if you read the book, Solomon does not say life in this world is meaningless at all. What he's frustrated about is the fact that it doesn't deliver the meaning that he wants it to, right? So it's disappointing. Like you want it, this aspect of life in this world to do this for you, and then it doesn't. It never does. It never lives up to what you hope it will do. It has meaning, but its meaning never matches expectations. It can never deliver what you hope it will. It's also vain. Not vain in the sense of just focused on outside appearances, but futile, right? It, it doesn't produce any kind of lasting result, anything of worth. All of these terms, this is all wrapped up in this term, havel, right? That, that Solomon says, hey, I look at the whole world, this is what it is. It's this vapor. It's temporary, it's deceptive, you can't wrap your head around it, it's disappointing, and it doesn't produce anything worthwhile. Very optimistic outlook on things, right? As you kind of probably captured all this when we read that passage, I want to walk you guys through the passage that we read. I'm just going to do a little commentary as we go so you can kind of see how this plays out for him. All right, in verse two, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we get Havel five times in one verse here. And this repetition, when this happens, this is, this is kind of accentuating, Solomon's basically saying that this is the vaporiest vapor there gets. Like, you think of the most vapor thing you can think of, this is more. Like, this is, it is so much like this. It's an intensifying kind of way of expressing this. Okay, so then he moves on. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Right here we, now we get to see his perspective, what he's looking at under the sun. This is a really big deal, right? When he talks about under the sun, he's talking about the world here and now. And specifically, and this is important, the world under the curse of sin. The world under the curse of sin. That's going to be a big thing as we go forward. That's what he's looking at. He's kind of, and his, his view is stopping at the sun, right? He's looking at that by itself in isolation, right? And he goes, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, normally this would be written, a generation comes and a generation goes, Right? Just the way we would kind of say it in English is the same way it would work in Hebrew. It's flipped. It's flipped on purpose to try to show the transience. Right? When you say one comes and goes, you're still talking about the same generation. When you say one goes and comes, you're talking about being replaced. Right? He's trying to drive home the fact even more so that as people, our life here is just, it's that quick. But the earth remains forever. The earth keeps going, but we're just like a flash in the pan. As it goes, he continues, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. So here he's talking about creation and just, he's talking about going in circles, right? He's thinking about all this effort, right? Think about the winds we had yesterday, right? These intense winds. What were they doing? 
They're just going in circles, right? They're going to be back. They're going to go to the north and they go to the south. This is his picture. It's the picture of a hamster wheel, right? Doesn't matter how fast you go. Are you getting anywhere if you're going in a circle? No, you don't get anywhere. It's just all this effort to get nowhere. He continues on, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Right? So he's talking about this, you know, a river that flows into the ocean. Does the ocean ever get filled up? No. It just keeps running, and it's never filled. Right? It's constantly being filled, but it's never full. It's never satisfied. There's never, you never reach the point of enough. Enough doesn't exist here. Continues, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Similarly, right? Like, if your eyes are open, you're seeing stuff, right? Like, your eyes are constantly working. You're constantly seeing. And are they ever satisfied? All they do is see all day long. Are they ever satisfied? Like, I've had enough seeing. No, they just keep seeing. And it's never done. Same thing with your ears. It's just constant toil and work, and it's never completed. It's never satisfied. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. We love new stuff, right? We love something that's new and exciting, and Solomon says, well, that really isn't such a thing. Right? Things seem like that at first, but then we realize it's just the same tired stuff that's just been repackaged, repainted, and really the world still works the same way it always has. Right? Technology changes, the outward packaging shifts, but the world still works the same. There's nothing new, nothing changes it, nothing fixes it. Nothing changes these dynamics that he's talking about. Lastly, in verse 11, he says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. All right, so maybe the fact that it's temporary, maybe that gets mitigated by, by legacy, right? I might be only here for a blip, and I can do something that's meaningful that people will remember. Just no, you'll be forgotten. How many people are actually remembered, Right? For all of our books and everything we have, the percentage of people whose names last beyond the generation after them is it's almost none. Right? We died and then we fade from memory. Nobody remembers what we did, what we accomplished. So Solomon sees no hope in that either. We're going to dive into all of these things more deeply in the weeks to come. This is this is the way Solomon's kind of thesis statement, what he's going to get into. But obviously Solomon did not paint a pretty picture of, of life in this world. And I don't want to leave you there. Because that's not ultimately where Ecclesiastes leaves us. It takes us there for a long time. And, and lets us sit in that for a very, very long time. Because, because we need to. And it helps us. The wisdom that Solomon gives us here is true. It is true, as hard as it is to look at, but it is not complete. Solomon's wisdom that he gives here is capped by the sun, right? He's looking at life under the sun. But as we go through the book, you're going to see these little spots where he pops out of the darkness, right, in, into the light. And he says something like, 
you said something totally different like two verses ago, and now you just said the opposite. Like, what's going on, right? He's going to have these little moments where he kind of peeks up, and he gets this glimpse over the sun, and it changes the dynamics. Nothing in the world has actually changed, right? Nothing about the reality here has changed, but the way that he sees it, the way he interacts with it, the way he engages it and lives in it shifts a little bit. Why? Why? Right? It's all because he, he gets that glimpse. He gets out of the perspective of just seeing under the sun, and he sees what is beyond just the here and now. And this is what we're going to have to constantly keep in mind as we engage with him as we go through this book. Ecclesiastes is interesting in the fact that it's almost, it's referenced almost nowhere else in Scripture, which is very, very unusual. The closest thing we have to a reference is in Romans 8, because that's the place where the Greek word for the Hebrew word, havel, that, that word that's the whole theme, it's the one place it gets used, is in Romans 8. And this is what we read there. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, futility, that's that word, right? That's the one. So for creation was subjected to futility, to favel, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, speaking of God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the hevel, the meaningless, the vanity, the futility that Solomon sees is not random, right? It is not just the way things are. It is intentional, right? The havel, this meaningliness that we experience that we see in the creation is from God. In Genesis 3, when we sinned, there was a curse placed upon us and the world for our sin. That curse is what brings about this, this meaningless vanity, this futility, right? But the point of the futility, what Paul says here in Romans 8 is that he subjected the creation to futility in hope, right? The curse was not meant to be the end. The futility of the curse was meant to do something. It was meant to serve a greater purpose, to drive us to the curse breaker. So the whole world gets subjected to this. Everything is fundamentally broken and distorted because of our sin, right? Things are broken, and we're broken with the way we interact with them because of sin, but he did so in hope because Jesus, as Galatians 3 tells us, came and he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That curse that renders the whole world meaningless and absurd and never able to deliver on what we feel like we need, that curse gets taken by God himself, the same God who put the world under that curse for our sin, now comes in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and takes that curse on himself to Calvary and kills it. Our day-to-day -day reality, that curse is still in function, right? That's what Roman 8 says. It says that we are waiting and longing for the reality of that curse to be broken. 
But because of what Christ has done, we know it is already broken. We just aren't experiencing the full freedom from it yet, right? So we're longing for Christ's return when our bodies are free from this first. And it says all of creation is waiting to be free from this futility that it operates in now. That is what's coming. So when we get hit over the head over and over and over again by this futility, this vanity that Solomon is talking about, what it is meant to do is to drive us to put our hope in a place that actually works, right? We try to put our hope in a sin-cursed world all the time in all sorts of ways, and we're gonna dive deeply into that over the next few weeks in all the ways that we do this. We like to put our hope in things that we can touch and taste and see. It's much easier. It doesn't take faith, right? And so we go from thing to thing to thing, trying to find something that will be enough. And what Solomon is trying to do, and he's saying like, don't do that, I did that. He did that, and it devastated him. It utterly devastated him. He's trying to cut us out from having to deal with all that pain, and he's skipping the whole process and saying, look, this is what it's gonna end up at. It's not gonna deliver. It will not be enough for you. You can chase anything in this world to the furthest degree you possibly can, and you will be as empty as the day you started. There is no hope there. And what the reality of the futility of this world is meant to do, the grace in it, the grace in it is that it's meant to loosen our grip and strip our hope away from all these things that will not deliver, that will just lead us into damnation and put our hope, cause us to look over the sun and put our hope in something that actually will deliver, something that will be enough, something that will transform the way you interact with all this futility because the one part of the curse that you cannot live under is the wrath and damnation of God, and that's already been taken by Christ. That is covered. So yes, you have to deal with the broken remnants of a place that doesn't work right, that doesn't deliver, but you are free from the part that you had to be free from because of the work of Jesus, and that is your hope. And because you're free from that part, it's the promise that all of this stuff is going away too. It will all be remade, renewed. There will not be a single bit of Havel left when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. He will strip it all away. The futility is temporary. It's something we deal with for a few years here. But because of the work of Jesus, who killed the curse by dying for us, it's going to be replaced. There will be no more futility. There will be no more vanity. Everything will be loaded with meaning. Everything will be enough. We will never not be satisfied. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It doesn't let us live in the delusion of false hopes that we so want to run to. I'm, it's hard to even describe how thankful I am for this book, uh, just as a pastor. <laughs> for, first of all, for me as a Christian, how, how much this has helped me, how many things I have seen myself run after and chase after and been disappointed and how thankful I am for what God put Solomon through to save me from pain and suffering. And I'm so thankful for this as a pastor because my calling, what I've been charged with is to care for your souls until Christ brings you home. And the, the one thing I have to do to do that is to get you to put your hope in Christ and nothing else. So that's why I, I love this book and I've been so looking forward to preaching this because that is 
one of the best things I can possibly do with you. I can be with you in the futility, right, in the vanity. I can walk with you, help you understand it, but I can help you see that that is not where your hope is found. And so I'm so, so thankful for this gift. I'm so thankful that we as a church are going to go through this together, right, and are going to walk through. And there's going to be lots of places we find that we have hope in things of this world, Hope that is going to get stripped away, that's going to be painful. We do not like to have hopes stripped away. It hurts, but we need it. And there is an incredible freedom that comes once we're liberated from those false hopes and our hope is put in the hope that will not fail us. And the beautiful thing is, is that when that happens, we actually get this world back in really beautiful ways where the vanity and the absurdity of it is, doesn't damage us the way that Solomon talks about. We get it back in, in these beautiful ways that when it's not our God, there's actually really, really good things here that we get to enjoy and pursue together. And so, church, one of the things that God has given to us as we walk through the here and now in this broken, cursed reality is he's given us this gift of communion, right? I, I, it's so, God is so good in how he works with us in this world, right? I was talking to somebody at church, you know, like a couple weeks ago about that. I don't remember who, but how God is so wise and good because he splits this needle, right? He, he, he gives us enough grace and goodness to keep us going, to keep us from falling into despair, to remind us that he's good and he will keep us, but not so much that we that we like this place too much, right? There's enough discomfort and enough failure, enough brokenness that, that we don't get comfortable. And he's so kind and wise to give us that perfect balance of those things that each of us need, right? Enough taste that this place does not satisfy and yet enough goodness. You're like, but, but I've got you and I'm gonna get you to the place that does. 